Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Humans of Excess Manchester with me, Clint Boone. Every week we'll be celebrating the spirit of Manchester by speaking to somebody who's helped to shape the city in some way or other. This week I'm joined by Dr Helen Pankhurst, activist, author, granddaughter of Sylvia Pankhurst and great-granddaughter of Moss Sideborn, leader of the suffragettes, Emmeline Pankhurst. She's going to tell us about the pressure of having that surname. It never felt heavy. It always felt positive. What I remember is the smiles on people's faces. And she'll describe how, in her opinion, the Manchester spirit influenced the Pankhursts. It's associated with resistance, you know, with standing up and calling things out and not giving in. It's an honour and a privilege to welcome to the studio a lady whose uh, surname alone conjures up thoughts of some of the greatest triumphs for human rights causes over the last 120 or so years. Welcome to the studio, Dr. Ellen Pankhurst. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Nice to be here. We're very excited about this one. (laughs) Me too. We're going to talk about, obviously, the great work that you were doing in the present day. We're going to talk about 
your family's lineage. We're going to talk about your youth, your growing up, your teenage years. Let's talk, first of all, about the fact that you were born in Manchester but raised in Ethiopia. Born in Ethiopia, actually. Born in Ethiopia, So right. the, the Manchester legacy, it kind of feels like it's the, it's the home, it's the family home. But actually, I was born in Ethiopia, grew up there, and then came to the UK to live when I was 12. So my earliest influences were very much around being born in Ethiopia. And during those 12 years, did you come to Manchester occasionally? Came to Manchester a little bit, but not very often, just okay. very occasionally. We used to come to the UK for the summer and then now and again came up to Manchester, um, but not much. And what were your memories of it, your earliest memories of this city? How I mean, bearing in mind that my, my early images were of... Um, a rather rural Ethiopia. We used to travel a lot within Ethiopia outside Addis and even Addis at the time was quite a laid back city. Manchester was a bustling, um, very, very, very busy place, very noisy place. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I've seen the change over the years. It's even busier and It's even busier and noisier. <laughs> There's a lot of cranes. <laughs> We've got a lot of cranes out there these days. Uh, now, did you get on at school then? Did you, did you do all right at school? Yeah, I did pretty well. Came from an academic background. Both my parents encouraged that. Yeah. Um, I think I wasn't too sure what to study. Um, I felt that women were often pigeonholed in terms of um, studying languages. And I had a lot of language in my backgrounds. Um, partly because we went to a French school in Ethiopia. I learned Amharic, the Ethiopian language. My mother was of Romanian origin and spoke many languages. My father's father was Italian, so I had a lot of um, interest in languages, but I felt I didn't want to be pigeonholed there. And Mm. so I tried a bit of sciences, and I ended up doing economics as a degree um, because I felt that was somewhere between languages and sciences. And was music a thing back then? (laughs) Yeah, but very, I mean, my parents were interested in classical music, so I grew up very much with uh, that, with listening. And my grandfather in particular, my mother's father, was loved classical music. So that right. was the, those were my early influences. So traditional classical music rather than Ethiopian music? Ethiopian music in the background is something I heard and friends listened to, but not something we listened to that much at home. Let's talk about the... Um the lineage, I mean, the um, these days, the name Pankhurst, still probably more than ever, that name is synonymous with such human qualities as passion and strength and empathy, determination to help people. It's quite a big name, isn't it? It's a massive, <laughs> massive name. And, and you know, you've, you've listed a number of points. I think the other one is it's associated with resistance, you know, with standing up and calling things out and not giving in and... Um, also calling out, I think, the double standards that society still has in terms of what it expects men and women to do and how it accept, expects women to resist. And you know, the suffragette movement with their statements around, look, men have fought for democracy and they have used militant tactics and nobody has batted an eyelid about that. That's in all our history books. But when women do it, suddenly this is treated very differently. I think calling that out, and that's not necessarily to condone the militancy, I think... Um, you know, a lot of people felt uncomfortable with some of the extremes, but it is also owning it and saying, you know, that is what we admire in them, their courage and determination year in, year out to stand up for women. Going back to being a child, were you you aware then of the this massive bloodline that you were part of. Did you grow up realising that was the case? Yeah, I mean, in Ethiopia, the name was actually associated with something very different, which was Sylvia's work against fascism and uh, Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia. So she was a great advocate of, of Ethiopian identity and their, uh, their, their struggle there. Um, so I was aware of that. And then whenever we came to the UK during the holidays, I would hear about the suffrage story, suffragettes and Emmeline. And 
over time, what I learned the most about was how interested people were, how controversial that name uh, remained, and the fact that there were so many splits within the family that they disagreed on so much. So the more people asked me, the more I had to understand and think about those disagreements because they're fascinating. Yeah, the family tree is quite fractured in parts and it because of fallouts, but... I think as individuals, you can't be that passionate and outspoken Absolutely. without it sometimes having, you know, yeah. uh, negative effects on the people around you. Exactly. And also any strong uh, movement always brings up differences of opinion. So even the feminist movement today is riddled with differences about how you should do it or, or any any social movement. There are yeah. always disagreements about which way to go. So from an early age, you probably knew what your career, if you want to call it, that was going to be. I mean, when the careers teacher at school went through the class asking what, <laughs> what you're all going to be, they probably skipped you because everybody knew that being a Pankhurst, they sort of had an idea where you were going. Um, yeah, probably. I mean, I think the two influences were really inf- important for me. So the international one, the being brought up in Ethiopia, seeing poverty, seeing um, not just the negatives of Ethiopia, but also all the massive positives. I mean, it is an incredible country and loving all of that and wanting to do something about that. And then when you start thinking about international development and thinking about poverty and vulnerability, you can't ignore the fact that women are at the forefront of being marginalised and needing a voice. So I put the two together, really, the Ethiopian yeah. background, interested in internationalism and interested in women's rights. And we'll talk about some of that great work you're doing, um, still doing that with ActionAid and Kerr International. We'll touch on that later on. Again, with the name Pankhurst, did you feel, you must have felt at times, a lot of pressure and expectancy and responsibility that comes with it? Yes, I suppose so. It never felt heavy. It always felt positive. And it was the smile, what I remember is the smiles on people's faces when they heard the surname and they'd say, oh, are you related? And I'd say, yeah. And they'd say, really? And I'd say, yeah. And they'd say, wow. <laughs> so that's what I remember more. There was also the odd things like um, going through passport control, even as a youngster, I remember some often men looking at the surname and saying, oh, you're going to chain yourself to the railings then, <laughs> that kind of response. And the, but I, I assume the biology of it, you were also born with that inherent desire to want to make things better for people that are not in a great place. Is that a biological thing, do you reckon? You can't, you can't uh, just buy into that, can you? Uh, it's very, very central to who I am. I think also a reflectiveness about that. It's not just about what we do for others. It's understanding the complexity of our relationship with others. This isn't just about them. This is about our responsibility. Let's talk about Sylvia. I'm fascinated about Sylvia's connection. This is where the Ethiopian connection started, I assume. Sylvia, born in 1882. She was born in Old Trafford, I believe. Is that right? That's right. And she moved at some point. She moved to Ethiopia and became advisor and very close friend of Haile Selassie. Yeah, so she um, saw this invasion of Ethiopia by Italy Nobody much was taking any interest in that in the UK, despite the fact that there had been international interests. So, for example, when Spain, with the whole um, uh, civil war in Spain, a lot of people from the UK, left-leaning people, went to support um, the the cause there, the anti-Franco cause there. But Italy invaded Ethiopia, and there was hardly any response in the media or anything else. So she thought, hang on, this is a free country that's being invaded. Why aren't we saying or doing anything oh, it's because it's Africa and nobody really is interested in Africa, bearing in mind this is the time of empire and all the rest of it. So she identified with the Ethiopian cause and did a lot of awareness raising globally. She started up something called the New Times Ethiopian News, which was a journal um, and a lot of uh, international um, solidarity to uh, the Ethiopian cause. And to, to cut a long story short, she ended up living there and is, uh, died, died in Ethiopia many years later. Fantastic story, isn't it? And her name is still held in very high esteem, in it, by the Ethiopian 
population. That's right. There's yeah. a monument as well, I think. Yeah, she's buried um, in the most sacred place in Addis Ababa, in the same um, cathedral as where the emperor is buried. She's more well known, I think, in Ethiopia than she is in the UK. Here, it tends to be Emmeline that people know about, although that is has changed over the years. I remember that uh, when I was quite young, people didn't know so much about Sylvia. But as the world has, has moved in the direction that I think is closest to her views, the world, I think, in the UK in particular, has been become more interested in her politics. You know, she was interested not just in um, feminism and in women's rights, but also in working women's rights. So she worked in the East End of London, understanding the links between poverty and um, sexual um, vulnerability. She was the first person to employ a black journalist. She was a pacifist in the First World War because she saw that as a war where the person, people who were most likely to suffer were poor men and their families and that this was not a just war in any ways. However, she was worried about the rise of fascism and one of the first people to talk about that and the dangers of it. Um, she was worried about the uh, use of aerial bombardment and um, uh, there's a anti-war memorial um, in Woodford Green to highlight the dangers on populations who would be victims of uh, warfare perpetrated by political elites for their own causes. So all sorts of issues that she, all sorts of causes that she took up one after the other, yeah. many of which I think still have resonance today. And it's, that's such a comprehensive list there of all the various causes within just the First World War or the issues facing Ethiopia. It just shows the, the level of, of passion that she had and that Emmeline had and you have to make things better. It's not like you're putting a T-shirt on here. It's not like you're just no. grabbing a bit of an headline. This is somebody who's just born and lives and breathes to help other people. Yeah. And it's a great so. thing. Let's talk about Sylvia's mum then, the great Emmeline Pankhurst. Our Emmeline. Let's yeah. talk about her next. Because in terms of like British history and culture and politics, Emmeline is as important a figure to us as Martin Luther King is to the world, I believe. Definitely. She is an icon. She is the icon that represents women's rights, resistance to so-called liberal uh, systems, which are man-made, man-controlled. And she represents that idea of saying, no, don't accept that. Women have to have a voice. And she was the queen of the soundbite, wasn't she? She came up with some great... I assume she came up with these things. I mean, there was a, a badge, the WSPU badge, that said, trust in God, she will provide. Yes. <laughs> yeah, all sorts of ones. I mean, the deeds, not words, the votes for women, the... Um, uh, we are what, what, um, we are here not because we want to be law breakers, but because we want to be law makers, etc., etc., etc. Fantastic, so isn't it? Well, about the uh, we have to free half the human race, the women, so that they can help to free the other half. half yeah. like, and and the, the other one, great one. I would rather be a rebel than a slave. Yeah, that could have been Martin Luther King, could it? Decades later. Yeah, really interestingly, that that one was used by in the promotion of the film Suffragette, and it caused some trouble because. She meant it in terms of I'd rather be a rebel, i.e. resist, than be a slave, i.e. be in chains. Um, but it was taken to have racial connotations because slaves, um, black, um, uh, the federal whites as being the, uh, the rebels. Mm. So it, when, it was, when the film Suffragette was being promoted using that slogan, in the States it was, re it was interpreted to be some kind of white supremacist type um, idea. It wasn't. But it shows you how words can have different connotations in different contexts. At different times in history. Yeah. As far as you know, right, I know Emmeline's mum and dad were very political, but was she the first one 
to become the activists that we know today? Or was there something before that? Yeah, there are things going on in the background, as it often is. I mean, what's fascinating in this family is, I think the power, their power and their success comes from the fact that it was a whole family involved. This wasn't just Emmeline. It was Emmeline with her daughters. It wasn't just the daughters. We don't know so much about the others, but there were. So in particular, Richard Pankhurst, Emmeline's husband, was probably the fuel to it all. He was a radical barrister. He had been involved in all sorts of social causes, um, including having uh, drafted the Married Women's Property Act, so a, a strong feminist, but really interested in many issues. And he died, um, and it's after his death that the spark to the suffragette movement being born comes from uh, a hall that is built in his name um, for the Independent Labour Party. Sylvia Pankhurst does all the decorations, and then in their wisdom, the ILP decide this is going to be a hall for men only. And that is one of the catalysts that forms the suffragette movement because the family says, really, honestly, really? Is this what you're going to do? You can't. Incredible. Um, And then the other person we know was an influence was Emmeline's mother who came from the Isle of Man. And remember that the Isle of Man is the first place to give women the vote. So in some ways, as a strong role model and somebody who believed in these issues, I think she was also part of the story. So she was Manx and this is all about Manx. That's right. Slightly different spelling. (laughs) (laughs) There's a great story about Emmeline that I came across were, as a schoolgirl, I'm guessing she might have been as young as 10 or 11, walking past the spot about 200 yards from here, just on the other side of the river, and literally a stone's throw, where there used to be an old prison, the New Bailey Prison. Uh, it's all multi-storey car parts and complexes now. But there's a story where she was walking home from school one day, walked past the gates, and when she looked through the gap, she could see the, the remains of the gallows, where they used to do the hangings. And I think the, the last public hanging at that time had been the so-called Manchester Martyrs and apparently that was one of the moments that uh, spurred her on to uh, decide to do what she did it's quite a powerful moment yeah. in her story it's a great thing and it happened just over there just around the corner just, right and I walk past that spot every day because I know exactly where the gates to the old prison was because yeah. as Natalie will tell you over there that I'm a bit obsessive about things like that, local history and that. Um, she's nodding. Yeah, she's nodding. Uh, do you still feel Emmeline's presence then and Sylvia's presence? That's a daft question, isn't it? Very much around me, yes. Um, I've got Sylvia as a middle name. We now have the wonderful our Emmeline statue just around the corner as well. Um, and, yeah, I think their cause is still one that's relevant today that we have to continue to fight for. And if Emmeline was around and Sylvia, they would still be fighting, wouldn't they? <laughs> Probably. What do you think they'd be I'd fighting be, for? I'd be in between saying, oi, come on. <laughs> yeah. So they, they, they would actually be doing exactly the, the, the work that you were doing, probably in the same areas, which we'll talk about next, uh, because you are, you're a women's rights activist, obviously. Uh, you're a writer. <laughs> Sorry, I meant that in a nice way. You do a lot of international development work. Tell us, first of all, about Curry International. So Care International is uh, one of the large international organisations working on a whole range of issues. It's very much focused on women's rights. Um, And, for example, in Ethiopia, we work with young girls around issues like encouraging them to continue to stay at school and not get married off, often to much older men at the age of 10, um, and therefore interrupt their school and the whole cycle of poverty that comes from that. So it's working with the community, working with the girls to ensure that they stay at school. It's issues such as provision of water and sanitation, something I've worked on a lot, because if you have water and proper sanitation closer, that reduces the burden on women and girls. Um, again, it stops. it's the having to collect those things that stops, well, it's having to collect water that stops girls from going to school. Um, and it's just unbelievable as far as I'm concerned in the 21st century we still have so many communities where Mm. people have to go and collect water every day 
And do you find that the the leaders or the politicians who are they do they welcome you with open arms? Or do you have a lot of bureaucracy to cut through when you because it's not just the case of walking into a village and doing the work, is it? I yeah, I mean the the strongest work is the work that is very closely aligned to and negotiated with government, community, and business. You know, the stronger you can have the links between all of those, the more effective you are. And generally, if you do things well, there's a, people are open arms. I mean, th- th- there are problems sometimes, there are conflicts about how you do things, but. Um, generally, we've worked in these areas a lot of times, and I'm so ingrained in Ethiopian culture and, and knowledge of the place that I can operate relatively well in those contexts. But doing it well is different from doing it. Yeah, it takes more time, effort, and money to do. Yeah, it really there's got well. to be a, a long-term result at the yeah. end of it, yeah. ideally. Yeah. And the similar thing with the Action Aid. You're a board member of Action Aid. That's the an international organisation working to help 15 million people around the world. Is that right? 45 yeah. countries? Yeah, a large organisation. Again, the the name, the, you know, the clue is in the name. They're very much interested in working with communities, identifying what the communities are prioritising and then supporting those. And again, within that, I mean, I did a little bit of research on that and some of the, some of the causes within that are just such things you wouldn't have even thought about. You know, I was reading about um, people working in entertainment industries in certain countries that are vulnerable and subject to abuse and it's just all these incredible causes that are essential that that get sorted out to make the world better to make the the world the place we want to be somebody's got to do this work and thankfully you're one of the people doing it i mean if you look at the issue of um, sexual violence in the workplace we've heard about that through me too and times up over the last couple of years as something that happens in hollywood and in more visible um, spheres of influence but we know that violence in the workplace happens in garment industries it happens in the poorest outsourced areas of the world as well where, where that visibility isn't there where the media doesn't look at the issues yeah. so for us i think at care and at action aid it's all about saying look globally can we look at some of these issues and so for example there is something there's an ilo convention which is being planned for um, which is being discussed which would mean a gl- better global legislation on um issues of violence and sexual abuse and workplace saying to companies and saying to national governments look the minimum standards are this that and the other let's agree those and let's have systems for changing the whole social norms around it just changing the assumptions that it's okay yeah. to abuse in the workplace a lot of these things don't always automatically become an hashtag or a t-shirt these are like serious issues they're as serious as some of the things that Hollywood are talking about tell us about gm for women 2028 so that's an initiative that's just beginning, Greater Manchester for Women 2028. Hopefully people, the audience will hear more about it down the line. But the idea is to look at what the situation is within Greater Manchester in terms of women's position. You know, here we are on the centenary of when some women got the vote. Um, a lot of the activism happened here. It started in Manchester. Manchester is the birthplace of this radical feminism. And the question is, to what extent... Um, are the lives of women in Greater Manchester any better? And if they're not, how can we make Manchester great for women? What are the concerns? How can we work together? So the initiative's bringing together a number of organisations, you know, civil society, um, activist um, organisations working on different areas, also some of the universities, um, business women, um, lawyers, Chamber of Commerce, many different organisations. And then saying, okay, so what are the priorities? What's the situation now? What are the indicators that we could look at that says this is where we're at right now? And a commitment once a year to review what the statistics are telling us and where we can push for change with the idea that by 2028, hence the, hash- hence the hashtag and the GM for Women 2028, um, we'll have effective change together. Um, 2028, the centenary of equal franchise. So as far as I'm concerned, it's our responsibility to do as much as we can between now and then. 
I've got time there. I've got a few years. I'll, be, I'll help you out on that one. <laughs> when you, you mentioned Manchester, you do um, you you are a visit, visiting professor at the MMU. That's the Manchester Metropolitan University. So when you're on those visits and you're looking at a, a young audience, essentially a lot of students, do you find yourselves looking for that same glint in people's eyes that, that you and your predecessors, your ancestors had? And I'm seeing it. You know, you see we it was, I was here for the... Um, unveiling of the Emmeline statue um, a few when at the end of the year, fourteenth of December, and there were so many young students from the MMU and from schools that came for that launch event, and it was fabulous how engaged they were and how many young people. I mean, I'd give talks up and down the country, including in Manchester, and the number of young women who are totally engaged and say, "Look, we can't assume it's all done. We really have to continue." And there's certain dangers that have that are newer, so the whole social media world the whole focus on what women look like and what young girls look like, the whole vlogging world that focuses on that is more pressurised today than it was 100 years ago. So there are ways in which the problem morphs. You know, the Twitter violence against women is a new form of the old problem that the suffragettes faced. So we're, we're not there yet, and many, many women know that, and men, supportive men as well. What do you think about the, the state of the world generally today? Do you find yourself getting... Do you find yourself ever getting pessimistic about things or do you just have this constant optimism and this hope and this determination to make things better? You know, right now, I think it's more difficult to be optimistic than it was, say, five years ago. In so many places, it seems to be going back. But I feel the world is polarised. It's polarised between two extremes. On the one hand, you hear so many people with that positivity that I was just talking about, with that sense of equality, not just around gender, but sexuality, colour, all sorts of promising enthusiasm for diversity and understanding this is all about spectrum and we're all in it together and it doesn't matter what we look like or what we believe and all that. You've got such a strong sense that that's happening in the world. And then on the other, you've got all these dinosaurs with their traditional views globally with a lot of power. I'm not naming any names, but you can think of which countries <laughs> I'm thinking about. And they're everywhere. So it seems like we're polarised between these two extremes and I don't know which one's going to win. I, definitely it's those dinosaurs that have a lot of power, but... You know, people power and all these other ideas. I hope will win out in the end. Do you have a, Do you have such a thing as a mantra? <laughs> um, yeah, actually, it's fun and purpose. I like that. In that order. <laughs> in that order. Or <laughs> linked up, let's say. Mine is make your bit of the world a bit better. Oh, that's that's, that's the way I've always lived like that. Just to yeah. keep our bit. Yeah. Better than it, make it better than it was, and if everybody does that, the world will get better. I mean, I definitely believe that as well. I also think small steps matter. You know what you can do around you, that even just small things, calling things out, just being a little bit aware of how you're compromised by some of these issues, and looking at ways of supporting others, not just focusing on your interests. Uh, definitely, we can all make a difference. Let's talk about Manchester, should we? This beautiful city that you didn't grow up in. <laughs> you, you don't live. You don't live here permanently. You're living outside of town. You do spend a lot of time here, don't you? Uh, but the contribution that you, your family, your name has made to this city is just incredible. Let's talk about the spirit of the city. Do you recognise Manchester as it, its own unique spirit? I do, and I do feel that the Pankhurst surname is linked to that spirit, um, the spirit of resistance, the spirit of radicalism, the spirit of identity. Um, it's very strong and it's powerful, it's positive. Do the people inspire you, Mancunians? Yeah, they do. They do with their with these ideas, and also with the laughter and the you know again the fun and purpose maybe. What are your favourite places in the city? I mean, can we, can we talk about the, the Pankhurst Centre? Is that that must be one of your favourite places? Absolutely. So the Pankhurst Centre, the um, in Nelson Street, was the home of um, the Pankhurst just at the point where they formed the WSPU, the suffragette movement. So they were there, um, living together in one small house. 
um, the whole family and extended family as well, actually. Um, and it's retains that sense of um, time. So if you go in, there's a parlour which represents those ideas. It's made to look like it would have looked like as a family home. And yet it's also an active women's centre where um, the Manchester Women's Aid operates and there's a drop-in centre, there's a food bank at the at the bottom in the cellar. There are all sorts of things going on. So it's an active women's space, which That's is incredible. fabulous. I love the combination of the two. And it's the actual space, the parlour is apparently where Emmeline came up with the ideas for what became the suffragette movement. Yeah. And it's and it's a charity, it's not even funded. It's, it's not funded. It's, it's not funded. got a lot of issues trying to raise funds, actually, and yeah. therefore it's not always open for the, to the public. It's open only on certain days. So we're trying to get funding for it to increase its um, visibility, to increase the staffing so that it's all open for longer hours. I imagine that's only a matter of time. In fact, I bet the next time we meet, I bet there's somebody will throw a load of money at that. Here's hoping. And, and it just needs to be yeah. absolutely celebrated. Uh, I mean, it's phenomenal of... that it isn't actually. You know, it's phenomenal that it's that given the level of interest in the pancreas, given its historic rel- relevance, that it isn't more secure really. Do you like the way the city's being developed at the moment? Are you are you seeing enough of it over the last few years to recognise the um, the amazing? Well, I say it's amazing. What do you think of the uh, architecturally, aesthetically, the way the city's changing? Yeah, I mean, you you have a sense that some parts of Manchester are retaining their character, you know, from the past, and yet there's all this um, new development. I'm very aware of it if you look at where the Emmeline statue is. So on one side behind there are all these massive glass new buildings and then she's pointing towards the free trade hall as was and the library so you see the old and behind is the new and I like that juxtaposition and you yeah. see that a lot in Manchester. Beautiful statue as well. Yeah. So tell us about your new book as well, you've got a book out. Yeah, it's called Deeds Not Words, the story of women's rights then and now and it starts looking at the, it starts by looking at the suffragette movement and how we got to 1918 with a bit of a personal take on all of that. And then most of it is based on interviews and statistics looking at how far we've got in terms of politics, economics, what about women's sense of identity, their sense of self, violence against women, culture. And in interspersed with all the stats and the quotes from people. There's also an encouraging of people, myself as well as I was writing it, to score so that we can compare. You know, how would you score progress with politics versus economics? What about versus culture? You know, Have we progressed more in one part of women's lives than another? So a lot of questions around that. And then at the very end, it looks forward to 2028 with quotes from people that link back to those themes of politics, economics, etc. to say, look, these are the things we really need to do. It's been fabulous writing it, and I've been through the book also going up and down the country talking to many people with amazing anecdotes that people share about their lives and their views about some of these points. Let me ask you a couple of questions before we wrap this up. First one being, who are your favourite humans of excess Manchester ever? Well, it has to be. It absolutely has to be the family, doesn't it? I can't get away from that. So, <laughs> the, yeah, I'll, I would go for them. Um, I have a current, um, somebody I really look up to at the moment, who's Lem Sisai. So he is representative of Manchester, um, just in terms of also being the Chancellor of Manchester University and just an all-round um, fabulous guy who represents that idea of taking up a cause because of your own experiences and being such a strong advocate of it. So he uh, grew up with a lot of um, difficulties in his life and through the care system and now is just such a champion for anybody and everybody um, who's been brought up through care and looking at how that can be changed. And he's an incredible uh, wordsmith as well. He's a poet as well. He's an absolute poet. And he's on our list of people to get into for the podcast who will be on soon. 
finally describe Manchester in three words? Uh, radical, vibrant, full of possibilities. Beautiful. Can I just say before you go, I've been, I've been broadcasting for well over 20 years now. and I've interviewed a lot of people, big names. And my wife never gets excited about this business when I said, oh, yeah, Liam's, Liam's coming in or Weller. You know what I mean? <laughs> she never bats an eyelid. When I said that I was going to be meeting with you to chat about your life and your work, she was like, no way. You are so fucking lucky <laughs> to get to meet people like that yeah. as part of your job. And that's the beauty and the power that your surname still carries. It's incredible. And it is. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Ellen Pankhurst, thank you for being a human of Excess Manchester. Real pleasure. Thank you. That was Dr. Helen Pankhurst, CBE. Make sure you join us next week where I'll be speaking to MasterChef winner and Wood restaurant owner, Simon Wood. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We are at Humans Excess and subscribe to Humans of Excess Manchester. Rate us if you like it. Feel free to leave us a comment. We love hearing your feedback. Thanks very much. See you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.